Hi, this is Andrew Miller from Business Enjoyment and this is another episode of The Tingle Zone. In this episode I'm talking with Paul Glover, who is known as the No BS Coach. Paul works with business owners and executives, mainly in the distribution and manufacturing sector, and tells them exactly how it is. Paul used to be an aggressive barrister, focused on doing whatever he needed to in order to win his case. After falling in with the wrong crowd and being tempted into bending rules a little too far, he got found out and spent the next five and a half years in prison. Having forced himself to take a good, hard look at himself, he became a reformed character and realised that his experiences could help others. After all, a lot of leadership is all about managing some very tricky relationships and taking responsibility for your own actions. At the heart of it all, Paul cares about people and cares about them enough to tell them the truth. Amongst many other things, we discuss subjects as coping with situations outside of your control, regardless of the impact upon you, how everyone has a voice that is worth listening to, and the importance of facing up to reality. We even have a conversation about what truth actually is. Before we jump into the interview, do remember to download a copy of my latest book, More Than Just Money, by going to my website, businessenjoyment.com. This book runs through the business enjoyment model, shows you how you can use it to find a solution to pretty much any problem, and of course, explains what I really mean when I say that I want you to enjoy your business so much, it makes your bits tingle. So do check that out, but for now, sit back, relax, get clear on your truth, and most of all, enjoy. Hi, Andrew. I'm Paul Glover, uh, Chicago, Illinois, and I am an uh, executive coach. And I do coaching uh, throughout the, uh, the continental United States, primarily with distribution and manufacturing, because my style and their style uh, works pretty well. I build myself as the uh, no BS workplace performance coach. I'm not a life coach. I'm all about dealing with people and improving their ability to perform. And uh, that's what I do. I've been doing that now for 20 years. And uh, before that, a recovering lawyer. I practiced law, uh, employment, and labor in Chicago for 30 years. Uh, and uh, you can tell my, my beard that, that the chronology still fits. <laughs> 50 in there. So, uh, so no, that was my background. Uh, I've had interesting experiences uh, because... And I've taken those experiences and made them part of my coaching process. I believe that if you can't, uh, we, we always talk about empathy. If you can't have experienced a lot of the things, especially the setbacks that people are going through, it's very difficult to be an effective coach, especially if I'm asking for improvement. Mm. Everyone believes they're doing the best they can. I believe that we have untapped potential. And the reality is to, to take that experience that I have and see if I can't explain to a person or help a person assist. I like assist better than help because obviously I'm not going to do the work. Uh, and, and we talk about those experiences in the context of what they're doing and what they're experiencing. And we have to have a bond. I don't believe you can coach without a bond. And that means you have to care. Uh, so we have our empathetic approach. We have caring, but I also tell people you can't care too much. You care too much, you're not able to give the impetus to the to the process. Mm. Uh, people often need a, a push. Uh, and maybe if that, maybe that's too. It depends on the person. Sometimes they only need a nudge, but every once in a while you need a 
somebody who says, I'm going to push you now. And, and by the way, you have to agree to the process. And once you have agreed, though, then that's where the no BS comes into play. You and I have reached an agreement about what you want me to assist you with. And we agree upon the plan. I'm an action plan guy. I'm anal. Uh, I've got to have an action plan. I have to have a deadline. And we have to have a goal because we're about performance. Right? If we're talking about life, it can be therapeutic go on for years. Uh, I'm not into that. Uh, that that's, you've got to take that to somebody else. Uh, not, not that it doesn't cross over sometimes, especially this last year. The pandemic has been difficult for a performance coach because the reality is, how was I going to talk to somebody in the middle of a pandemic about how they had to get better? It was like, hang on. Let, let's talk about there's an outcome after this. Uh, and often people needed to hear about context because, uh, again, that's where I probably became most valuable for my clients because we talk about resilience and we talk about setbacks and recovery. And, uh, and I've gone through enough experiences that, that I was able to say, look, let me tell you how this works. Mm-hmm. That whatever you're enduring now, uh, you are going to be able to come out on the other end. Obviously, people have some difficulty with that sometimes, especially with the uncertainty of the pandemic. The very beginning, people's hair were on fire. I mean, they, they thought their world was coming to an end, and with some justification, by the way. We weren't sure how, uh, how fatal it was going to be, mm. how many people were going to be impacted, how many businesses, especially at the very beginning in a year ago, March, how many businesses just shut down and so, or just, just about came to a halt. And my clients suffered through that, and I suffered through it with them. And, uh, you know, I, I can tell you that the story the context that I used was establishing context. Uh, I had a, I had a, uh, the president of a $60 million company, uh, a steel operation. And he, every time I talked to him, and he was just, he was crazed, right? And we had to go through this process. He needed to deescalate. And one of the things I said to him was, look, you know, it, it's not as bad as you think it is. And he couldn't, he was pissed when I said that. I said, how can you say that to me? It, it is the worst thing that's ever happened in my life. And I was like, well, all right. It ranks number four for me. <laughs> it was like, that's not true. He was, he, was, he was taken aback first. And then he said, that's not true. That can't be true. This is the worst thing since 1918, right? And I was like, well, obviously I wasn't around then. So I can tell you that wasn't one of them. But I said, no, it's number four. And he was like, uh, no. I said, yeah, it was. Uh, he said, well, what did Carl tell me? Tell me what they are. I said, sure. I said, you know, uh, I went to war and people were shooting at me. Very stressful. <laughs> Every day. Let me tell you, more stressful than, the, than it was today. And he was like, oh, my God. Uh, you know, I said, geez, uh, uh, I've been divorced. Uh, let me tell you, a very stressful, very stressful experience. I got through it. I said, you know, I went to prison. Five and a half years in prison. I said, much more stressful than being in a pandemic. And by this time, of course, he's like, whoa, (laughs) calm down, let's talk. I said, by the way, I've come up with another one that's worse than the pandemic. He said, what? I said, they closed the Starbucks two blocks away. It about put me over the edge. (laughs) (laughs) At that point, of course, that made him laugh. And by the way, part of my coaching process is, in every conversation where there's that level of stress, it's part of my job to first reduce the amount of stress 
And if I can get someone to smile or laugh at some outrageous thing that I say, then it helps. <laughs> anyway, that, that's been the last year and a half. So it's been, it's been a journey. And I've, I've kind of given you a part of my journey through that story. Absolutely. And, and uh, all that's going on in my head is the fascination <laughs> that your divorce and your ranking game between prison and war. And <laughs> there's definitely a story in there. So <laughs> I, I, I like specifically what you had right at the beginning in many ways is that, uh, and I totally resonate this with a coach, you know, what we do is a, is a combination of what the journey we've been through. And, and it allows us to inform and connect with the people so that we've got those experiences and who we are is where that comes from. So, you know, we need to find out about these things. <laughs> we need to find about the war, the prison. The divorce is up to you. I'll let you fly on that one. And, 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 and maybe even more touch on the Starbucks if you can cope with that. <laughs> so, so let's just go back. Uh, were you in the military before going into law? Well, that was, that was Vietnam. And yeah. the Vietnam War. Uh, and I was fortunate enough, right? I, I went to Europe on tanks. So, so when I said that I was shot at, it wasn't actually true. It was I was in the service and I was in Germany. And I spent I spent that period of time thinking I was going to go to Vietnam mm. and uh, worrying about what that was going to be. And that experience of being in the army for me was uh, not good. Uh, I didn't like it. <laughs> I, I believe that every rule is a suggestion. And uh, I've showed up in some situations where the rules really mean the rules, and, and the army was one of them. So, uh, so I struggled with that, right? Uh, Had you always been somebody that sort of um, battled against the the system and didn't oh, doing what you were told? Yeah, they, I was on extra duty in KP, and I, you know, I, just the weirdest stuff, right? I went on leave. I was given leave. I went on leave. I came back with a mustache, and that's not allowed. And you know, and it depends on who your commanding officer is, right? And I got along fine with the commanding officer. It was the sergeant that was a problem, right? The sergeant was old school and, you know, something I wasn't having. I just wasn't having it. And neither was he. Mm. Of course, the problem is when you challenge, when you, when you challenge the positional authority, uh, you have to be prepared for the retaliation that can come with it. And that, that's, by the way, that, that's also a part of the coaching process. When you talk to someone who says, uh, you know, the concept of let's speak truth to power. I'm like, you know, it's not as easy as you make it sound. <laughs> because there, maybe you know what's going to happen, but maybe you don't. And are you going to take the risk? Uh, I'd actually, I'm writing an article right now, is truth in short supply? Because I think that we keep talking about being truthful, but the reality is it's difficult for us to be truthful. So the Army and I did not get along well. Uh, and, and, no, and just to touch on that point, just to get all philosophical sure. on your ass, uh, <laughs> you know, what is truth? Yeah. And that, and, and that can cause a lot of the problems is that two people can have a massive argument about something and yet they're both in their own head speaking the truth. Well, and, and in the business context, again, philosophically, truth, truth is something that you can you can look at your own situation. So that is the truth for me. I'm OK with that uh, if we're talking uh, life. But but when we're talking uh, in the business context, for instance, when I have a when I have a a leader, a team leader that that is with me because they need to change, and everybody enters the coaching program for a reason, right? But often we're we're about getting better, or we don't have a choice. Uh, someone above us has said, "Look, you may be a really good." I'm tell you, the the person who's the diva 
that really is a great performer, but is toxic to the team. Yeah. I often get that person because uh, the head of the organization says, I hate to lose the performance, but I, I can't have the toxicity. He's driving team members off. And, and so we start with that concept of uh, let's make sure that you are aware. And one of the really, when we start talking about truth here, their truth and my truth, let's put it this way, my perspective, their perspective uh, needs to be aligned. Mm. Otherwise, coaching is a waste of time. And so we start off with the fact, well, let me tell you why you're here according to what I've been told. And that is, you're this, this, and this. And they often are like, yeah, but I'm not that bad. Well, okay, but you're bad enough to be forced into this process. But let me give you some objective information. You see, I'm trying to get away from the subjective, which definitely is an interpretation uh, that both of us can have differently. And, and so we do that through an assessment process. Uh, I love the 360-degree review. Because if it's anonymous and it comes to me, not to them, I will get the truth. Uh, not the whole truth, but I'll get enough of it because their team will tell me a collective truth. And it's that collective truth that I'm able to present to the other person that says, it's just not, it's not what I've been told. It's what your team is telling me. Now we have a different context for the conversation. Mm. And by the way, uh, people, people respond to that differently. Uh, they fall into three groups. Uh, I, I am aware. I am aware, but I don't care. And I'm aware and I'll do something about it. Yeah. Aware and not caring, not the same thing. I'm aware, but I don't want to put the effort into it. I'm aware, but they need to change, not me. And then I get to the person who says, I'm aware, and I, I will suddenly do what I need to do to change that perspective of me. Mm -hmm. You know, when I get to that person who's, uh, who's aware but don't care, and my, my response to them is, you're not as good as you think you are. That pisses them off. And, and often at that point, we can actually have a discussion because I'm going to tell you the truth as I see it, but an objective truth, not a subject. I don't work for you. You don't work for me. Our relationship is one that, from my perspective, is voluntary. From yours may not be, but hopefully we'll turn into it. Mm. So, uh, so the truth, of course, that's it, it, like I said, I, I, and I was, as I was speaking right now, I was thinking about a few good men. I want the truth. You and can. you handle the truth. Exactly, yeah. And, and I often believe that we, we make that assessment for the other person. We, we decide, can you handle the truth? Instead mm -hmm. of allowing you to make that decision. Mm. And I don't believe that that's appropriate. I think that in any relationship, and by the way, there are some things, obviously, that you can shade. I have no problem with that. As my wife would say, I'm a master embellisher. Right. I, I, I will embellish something that I believe uh, will make a point or, or be entertaining. I love to think I'm an entertainer. My wife is always tells me you're not as funny as you think you are. <laughs> is, she so, your, is she your no BS coach for you? Is she? Oh, yeah. She <laughs> well, the thing about this, she stayed with me for five and a half years. I was in prison. Yeah. That by itself is remarkable. Yeah. Anyway, so so back to the back to the truth thing. Uh, you know, I, I make my, I tell I make my living telling people the truth yeah. that they normally don't want to hear. Uh, and it's then my ability to say, 
let, let's let's assume that I'm correct based on some objective information. And at the end of that, the coaching process, I like a 12-month period because I found out it takes that long for people to work their way through transformation. Mm. And at the end of that 12-month period, uh, I, we're going to do the 360 again. And what we're going to do is see if it's different. Uh, obviously, if the coaching process has worked, hopefully the 360 reveals that. Mm. Uh, if it hasn't, by the way, it'll reveal that it hasn't too. Uh, and, uh, you know, part, and I'll just, I'll finish the process. 50% of my compensation is based on you actually improving. So at the end of that 12 months, we take this 360 as a determinator, not only of have you improved, but are you prepared to pay me 50%? And it's completely your choice. But obviously, if I can show you objective evidence that the coaching process has worked, uh, I'm more apt to get paid. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And, it, and, that, and that's the, the quality of having those clear uh, targets, goals, boundaries that you, you referred to. Out, out of interest, do you, what's your opinion? Because obviously you were, what you alluded to there was uh, brought in by the, the CEO or whatever it is or, or some sort of team leader and then dealing with somebody later on down the team that, that's, that's a bit toxic. Do you feel that it has to have somebody who's disconnected that's outside to have that conversation? Or in reality, should the person up above be able to be that person for the toxic and have that level of conversation? Uh First, the, the, uh, the theory should be that we should be able to coach each other. Uh, and I, I would suggest to you that my experience with my wife would say that that doesn't work. Uh, unfortunately, in the work relationship, yeah, we don't. Uh, first, for the CEO to tell someone else on his team uh, to do the coaching process, uh, you, the coaching process can be bruising. And the relationship between the two of them has got to be Something that other than coaching, by the way, I believe it, that, that team leaders need to coach. Uh, it just to the extent that it goes. Uh, and, and so, no, they need to have a coaching skill as a part of the relationship. But it just depends on how deep you want to go and what you have to change. Obviously, if I need to talk to you about being able to count more widgets, that's more management than it is coaching. Yeah. Uh, and my contention is nobody wants to be managed anymore. But if I have to coach you as telling you the purpose of the organization and your place in it, that truly is the, the CEO, president's leader's job. That's where you, that, that should be what they do. Terribly bad at it. Terribly bad. Uh, you know, I, 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 it's not that they don't want it, but, but first, the first thing I hear is, well, I don't have time to spend that much time. See, I dedicate... Every other week, we're spending an hour plus with each other, having a conversation solely about you and about your performance. If you talk to a CEO or a president about that amount of time being spent, they're like, that's crazy. I can't. My, my argument is, well, I'm not sure what your job is then. But by the way, if that's not your job, you'll pay me to do it. Then, then I'm OK. But yeah, why, why aren't you doing that? Isn't your job to be with that person? Well, yeah, but I've got... Too many direct reports. Well, maybe you and I should be talking about that because if that relationship is, is tenuous because you've got too many people, aren't, isn't that a message to you? I don't understand. What don't, what don't you hear here? But they don't. And by the way, I, would, I wish that I could tell you some secret formula coaching. Everybody knows what it is. 
It's, you, you just go through, you have to have certain things that allow the relationship to work. Mm-hmm. And so what I've found, shorter answer, it doesn't work. In theory, it absolutely should. Yeah. All CEO, by the way, there's an interesting study that came out about leaders, especially CEOs and presidents, and their personality is very close to that of a serial killer. You know, and second, they are filtered. Uh, the, the CEO never hears the truth. Did you say they filter? Oh, yeah, because there are so many layers, so many layers from the actual, what Mm. I call the action. The action in an organization takes place somewhere several layers below that person, right? So what they hear has been filtered at every layer layer because people aren't stupid. You know, you keep saying, well, don't kill the messenger. They absolutely kill the messenger. Right. And, and if they don't kill them, they certainly let them know that they could kill them. Right. So so people don't tell them the truth. So it's very difficult for them to get to that. Point. Sort of like steered Chinese whispers, isn't it? It's so Chinese whispers is obviously is a random error, but this is every single time it's just gloss it a little bit more and gloss it a little bit more until it gets watered down to something that doesn't really mean yeah. anything. Uh, that's what that you're, you're at. We call that telephone playing telephone where you turn to the person next to you and yeah. then you would the message and the yeah. And by the time he gets back, it's not the message anymore. Yeah. It's something else. Uh, bears very, very little relationship. Uh, so, no, it's, uh, it, it's difficult for team leaders to be really good coaches. Now, smaller the team, easier to be a coach. Yeah. But you also have to have the, the, the mindset to say, I'm stepping out of my manager role into a coaching role. Mm. Coaching is a skill set. And you have to have at least the rudimentary understanding of what you're trying to achieve, right? Because that is a distinct difference. And, I, and my contention is that the future of work is self-directed teams. Because there you don't have these dynamics. You don't have a manager. You have a team that, that of equals, right? We, and so the concept is not new, but we can't get our head around it because we still think people need to be managed. And I disagree with that. And if your team leader's job, <coughs> excuse me, if your team leader's job is to do nothing but make sure that you make so many widgets an hour, that's all you ever get out of that person. Yeah. yeah. You don't get discretionary effort. You don't get commitment. You don't get engagement. And by the way, we know all the words. Every leader knows the words. <laughs> but, but it's lip service because, for instance, work from home to me is absolutely something that should remain in place. It makes sense from so many uh, areas, but but we find so much resistance. First, we have all this thing about socialization, blah, blah, blah. I'm not sure if it's true or not, but I, I doubt it. I'm skeptical about that. Uh, but I what I do know is that we believe, unfortunately, continue to believe, that the way we get performance out of people is to watch them, mm. right? And, and the modern office is nothing but an extension of the industrial assembly line. And of course, what we do at the assembly line, we put some put a person there. My father was a uh, worked as an electrician for General Motors, and he said, "When I when I come to work, they tell me, leave your brain at the time clock, right? Don't want you thinking." We're going to tell you what to do and you do it, but don't, don't talk to us about this. So we now have this concept about where well, we need everyone to come together in the office so we can ideate. 
I hate the term. I have no idea who came up with it. Gonna, it's a new one on me, to be honest. I've not heard ID8 before, but I think I can work it out. <laughs> yeah, so there, there's actually a commercial. I love TV because of commercials. It's IBM, and they open it. This guy opens the door, a team leader. He turns on the light, and there's like 50 people laying in the dark. And he goes, what are you doing in here? And so we're ideating. Right? We're, we're, we're apparently coming up with this innovation. And we have this concept that all, everybody's going to come back to the office because that's where we do our innovation. Mm. Right? That's what, and I was like, there is no one that I know that ever had an idea that went from the bottom up and was meaningful. That's not the way it works. Our, we're, we're pushing ideas down. We seldom are listening to people who are doing the job. We should be. They know, they know what's wrong. I guarantee you, you talk to somebody on the front line, they'll tell you exactly what's wrong with the process. Mm. Nobody's listening to them. No one's asking them. And by the way, we've taught them not to say anything. Mm. Right? Don't say that. Don't do not challenging the status quo is is just a thankless job. That most of the time we, we, we is the end of the result is you move to go to another company. Mm. Because we, and I suspect also there's element kind of touching to what you said earlier on that the the people immediately above the 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 actual managers, if someone comes up with an idea, it's like, oh, I'm going to have to make the change now. Yeah. Oh, that's too much like hard work. Yeah, I, I, you're absolutely correct, right? And by the way, they're they're vested in the status quo. Yeah, absolutely. The change. Oh my God! The only time we look for change is what when performance drops. Oh, wait a minute. Now we have to do something different. By the way, the first thing we do is we get rid of the management. It must be the management. <laughs> well, it may be. I'm not saying that it's not. But how about if you look at your process first? Yeah, yeah. Before you start, before you start blaming people, how about if we look at how hard we make their job? Because we really make it hard. Right? You talk to managers and they, they hate HR. Because HR first will not let them get rid of a toxic employee. I call them the the working dead. Yeah, been there. (laughs) You can't get rid of them. The processes are pretty. But by the way, that's because lawyers have scared the crap out of HR. Yeah. Right. So so now you you refuse to let someone who's definitely toxic, uh, the working dead. You force the managers to go through so many, uh, just you've got to have so many steps and you've got to counsel them. You've got to coach them. And then you got, you, you first, you have to give them a verbal and then you have to give them 14 writtens. And at that point, maybe we'll let it happen. And at that point, they managers like, I just assume work with us. I'm not dealing with it. Really. Let's just, uh, by the way, what do we do with the toxic? I love what they do with them. The working dead. They're terrible performers. You know what we turn them into? They get to train the new guy. <laughs> oh, my God. Are you kidding me? The worst employee in the group. Well, why is that? Because I can't let one of my good performers stop performing. Right? I'm constantly told, do more with less. So I'm running thin. And my good guys are really good. And I got these, this guy, this working dad, who's terrible on performance. So when I get a new guy in... That's my trader. It's like, you know what you end up with then? You get another working dead, right? But, but that's our system. We can't break the mold here, even though we know we should. Doesn't happen. Yeah. 
yeah, yeah. and and it also is sort of that person that's uh, the toxic one you spend all the time more time on them you more attention on them and the really star quality employee is just going what about me you just exactly. ignore me and uh, and and, all, and they then get hacked off and leave because no one's really giving them any attention or support spot on <laughs> at, the, at the annual raise I, you know, first, I, there's some processes that I recommend. One, it's called nine box, and it, it's how you rate your employees. And, you, and managers, team leaders are able to rate their employees very quickly, right? And uh, they, they will identify the working dead pretty quickly. Why not? They work with them every day. And, and they give the list, of course, they give the list to HR when it comes raise time. And, and what's HR do? Well, they look at the list and they go, okay, well, the good employees get 4%. Okay, good. Uh, by the way, the bad employees, they get three and a half. What are you talking? Why are they getting anything? I can't. Oh, oh my God. You, we, we've got to give them something. Why? They don't deserve it. And you've been told they don't deserve it. And yet you're going to give it to them anyway. Take that money and give it to the, the top 20%. And guess what? They become better. They become happier. They become more set. No, can't do that. Got to give everybody something. <laughs> aye, aye, aye. What are we worrying about here? Well, the, they might go to EEOC. Okay. <laughs> well, and then we're going to have a charge. And then we're going to have to pay a lawyer. And then, well, that's and so, so I have an ongoing battle. Uh, you know, I, a paper that I wrote a year ago really pissed all the HR clients I have off was HR is the new union. HR's the new union. Union, you know, yeah, yeah. Union. It, yeah. It's, it's you can't. You, you, wait, wait. You live in you. You live in an, in an envi environment that gives you the right to terminate anyone for any reason other than discrimination. That's the U.S. Right? They call it employment at will. There's no contract. So if you don't like me for any reason whatsoever, uh, you can terminate me. Now, obviously, if I can show discrimination because I'm old. Uh, then we have a problem. But if you can show that that's not why you fired me, not for a discriminatory reason, then you can absolutely terminate me for no reason. And yet HR is frozen in place when it comes to taking action. And the front line hates it. So anyway, mm. it's... It always reminds me of an, an old uh, Peter Sellers, you know, Peter Sellers, the, the comedian. Sure. Uh, there's a film back in the 1950s called I'm All Right, Jack, where he's the shop steward of a union representation of factory workers and all this sort of stuff. So we're talking 60 odd years ago, 70 years ago, this film. And there's just that one line which always stands out, which is, you can't get rid of somebody just because they're no good at their job. There we go. I love Everybody that. out and then on strike. And <laughs> Unfortunately, 60 years later, that's still, a, that's still a good line. <laughs> So um, anybody listening to this will be enjoying it, but also their mind's going to be worrying. I need to know about the other stuff you're not telling me, <laughs> Paul. There's so much of stuff. To... So I'm going to bring you back. <laughs> and for me, I'm still intrigued. I still want to know. For the guy that doesn't like uh, following the rules, that followed, wants to follow his own path, uh, it's clear about the, these sort of things. Why the hell did you join the army in the first place? Oh, I was drafted. I a, dra a draft was in place. Oh, okay. oh, yeah. Absolutely yeah, no choice in the matter. In you go. No, so I, in was you in, go. I was actually in college when they drafted me. Right. Oh, okay. 
that's oh, allowed, right. is it? <laughs> exactly. So, so I was supposed to go, apparently. And, yeah, I went. I mean, I, I wasn't going to be a draft dodger. My father was a veteran, and uh, I felt the obligation once I was called, whether mm. I, not that I wanted to go. Once I was called, then I won. Yeah. But it was such a uh, – and by the way, World War II is how Americans learned to manage, right? Uh, so they took the, the rules of, of the Army, the war, and they bought that into the factory. So we've got this continuation of, a, of a, an old, inaccurate, creaky system that keeps being imposed on every generation. So yeah, so I, I was not uh, I was not voluntary, but I went. Mm. So being in a position where you hated following the rules and the laws, a few years later you are now enforcing the rules and the laws by becoming a lawyer. Uh, actually, uh, what I was <laughs> what I was doing was was defending employees against employers. Okay, that was your main specialism, was it? Oh yeah, it was. Uh, I, I, did, I did not represent employers. I was a uh, I was a union lawyer. <laughs> so you can talk with authority about unionism, okay? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. By the way, I was the guy that was telling you you couldn't fire that guy. Yeah, exactly. It's all your fault. <laughs> so, so no, I uh, I represented uh, employees. I represented labor unions, and uh, and therefore. Uh, it was all about being rebellious. It was all about uh, not not following the rules and, uh, and and doing anything to win. It was all about winning, and uh, I didn't have to be right; just the opposite better to me, uh, because uh, I considered uh, practicing the law to be uh, a modern form of combat. And the judge was in charge, the referee, to make sure we didn't kill each other and followed some rudimentary rules. But other than that, no, I was, uh, I was all about making sure that my client walked out of there the winner. I mean, did you care about the client or was it literally just the win? You know, I, I think I had enough empathy for the client, but because, yeah, I cared about the client. It's, it's not to, I shouldn't say it was all about winning. But definitely, it, that was the adrenaline pump, by the way. Uh, the client was never the adrenaline pump. First, the client never told you the truth. Hmm. <laughs> because, once again, clients don't want you to like them. They, because they believe that means you're going to represent them better. So they'll never tell you what they really did. You have to find out through discovery, right? I mean, that's the whole process where you actually find out most of the truth. Uh, so, no, my client was never willing to tell me what they'd done wrong. In fact, they vehemently denied they did anything wrong. Uh, the, the reality was the courtroom was where the facts came out, and it, to, to a certain degree. Uh, so, no, it was, uh, it was okay, my job to represent you. I may not like you, by the way, uh, but, but a lawyer's job is not to like, it is to represent. Yeah. Yeah, and I did that to the best of my ability. And, again, the juice, the juice game, the adrenaline hit, came from the trial work. I can't believe, I, I could never understand why anyone wanted to practice law and not be at trial in front of a jury, uh, because that's where you get to perform. Were you, were you an actual performer then? Oh yeah, absolutely. It was, uh, at first, first uh, you know, the law trains you to be analytical, but it doesn't train you to, uh, to be a performer. It doesn't train you to be a good communicator. And I learned quickly that the facts mattered, 
but only in the context of the story that I told the jury. Because at some point they had to like who I was representing more than they liked the other side. And by the way, that meant that I would win cases that I should have lost. Mm. Yeah, even though the facts were against my client, and, and I didn't do criminal law, but the facts were against my client, I would always show enough of a story and give them enough wiggle room to decide even if the facts weren't in my favor, the story was. Mm. And they connected to the client through me. So you're so if they like you more, they're gonna like your client more, they're more likely to let them off. And sure. And and my one of the, the odious part of the job, but the one that I was really good at was making the other side look bad. Mm. Yeah, I love to get, you know, I, the, the concept of examining or cross-examining the witnesses where I really uh, prevailed. Uh, I love to get somebody on the stand. I care who you were. I was going to make you look bad. I was going to make you look like an asshole. And there's somebody that even if you were technically right, you were either morally wrong and you shouldn't win. And uh, yeah, I would, <laughs> I, I was famous for keeping people on the stand until when they got off, they would tell me I, my ass hurts. I've been sitting in that chair so long that it, <laughs> I was butt hurt. And it was like doing my job. <laughs> so, no. Yeah, and, and if they come off in tears, even better. That they, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, can, uh, I can see how this works with the uh, inter, you know, now with the inter team discussions when you know pretty much every trick in the book on both sides of the fence. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. No question about it. That, that's where. I, I tell people that good trial attorneys have a really good BS antenna. You, you are, you are listening. Not only do you do that with your client, because at some point they take the stand and you want them to at least look plausible, right? They've got to get through this process, but you also are listening for that. Nobody to get the truth. We're back to the truth. No one, no one wants to tell you the truth. So a witness is not going to tell you the truth if they can avoid it because they figured out what they have to say to win, but also they, they don't want to look bad, right? Nobody wants to look bad. So, so you're listening for that, that bullshit, that BS that comes out and you hear it and you go, that, that's where I'm going to get you, right there. Yeah. And inevitably. And once you make a person admit to the jury that they told the falsehood, lied they lose credibility yeah and suddenly the shift is to your side isn't it amazing the length that a human being will go not to look bad absolutely we all we all suffer from that don't we self-esteem is uh you know when i when i talk to team leaders and they've got a toxic employee the first thing i tell them is do they care about the team this toxic employee and if they tell me yes, then I say, that's how you approach them. They don't care about you. If they did, we wouldn't be having this conversation. They care about the team and how the team sees them. Mm. So if you shift your approach to the team, you are hurting the team, and the team is starting to see you as something that you don't want to be seen as, that's often a way to shift people into, a, into what is considered by management to be a, a more appropriate attitude. Mm. Or they can take the choice and, uh, as uh, Jim Collins would say, get off the bus. But, uh. Exactly. <laughs> uh, by the way, 
working dead never get off the bus voluntarily. That's they love the bus. Yeah. <laughs> they don't have to work. They figured it out. <laughs> so you throw them off the bus. There's a difference. You throw them literally out. Go. <laughs> Everyone gets off onto a different bus and just leave that bus where it is. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Or what we do is we move them to another department. Yeah. Yeah, that's really good for the organization. Just keep shifting the working dead around. Yeah, yeah, usually upwards as well at the same time, just to make it even worse. Extraordinarily, how working dead get promoted. I mean, they're not stupid. They know how to play politics better than most. Uh, And and whenever the boss walks by, they'll always look busy. Well, the the other one is the people who are really good at problem solving because they're always solving the problem that they created in the first place. Sure. And they I, get known for being a problem solver. This guy sorts, of, sorts the issues out. Bring him in, because he's the troubleshooter. He calls the trouble. <laughs> well, no, and, and they're really good at it, obviously. And also chaos. The working dead love chaos, because they hide in it, right? And so uh, there's there's this group of working dead who are pot, pot stirrers. Uh, they'll, they'll see that somebody else, that there's issues going on, Stir the pot, then step back and watch. And they always look like a good guy. I'm not involved in that crap. Yeah, I'm yeah. happy here. <laughs> but look at the rest of these guys. They're not. And you can you can see that with, you know, uh, children, siblings sort of thing, where the, the older brother will wind up a younger sister and then just step back as she's exploding, going, Mom, <laughs> sister's yeah. off again, or vice versa. You know, it's just... Yeah, and interestingly enough, as much as we hate to say that, we bring all of that stuff with us. Yeah. What we learn to do as children, we apply to the workplace. And unless somebody tells us that's not working, we we go with it. Yeah, yeah. And, and again, I mean, going off piece of it, but going back to what you said, is that sort of transactional analysis element of the, the, the manager, the worker, the up and above, is that parent-child relationship and, and having to tell people what to do and manage people. Is, 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 so when you take the adult response to you, the other person switches into child mentality. Whereas what you're obviously talking to is like actually give people the space, give people the accountability, allow them to be an adult, to make good choices, to make good decisions. And then then you've got a proper harmonious relationship. Well, and you're, you're absolutely correct. It's it's act like an adult. Mm. I'm going to give you. And by the way, that means I have to give you the responsibility mm. and, 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 and permission to cock up. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then I, I have I have to hold you accountable. Yeah. I mean, we have to have you know, reciprocity. So what we're looking for here is reciprocity. Uh, you tell me what you need, what you want. I'm going to try to provide it. And then I expect you to do what I need and want, which is perform. That's all we want them to do. We don't want them to love us. You know, We love a little respect. But if I don't get that, but I still get the performance, I'm able to live with that. Uh, so that, so you're, you're absolutely correct. The transactional aspect of it is very clear to everyone. It's how we then move from transaction to a relationship mm. because it's a relationship that gives management what they really want. And that's that discretionary effort that you can't pay for. But we don't, we can't get beyond transaction. Mm. Uh, so, so again, you're at home and your performance is fantastic, but I need to install this surveillance app on, on your computer so that I can see you working or count your keystroke. I'm like, oh my God, don't, do you just want to tell, say, I don't trust you. So let's make sure we understand. Yeah, yeah. 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 
And then the person on the other side is like, let me figure out how I can screw with this system. Because they do. I believe that employees get even. Mm. And if you treat them poorly, they either leave or they figure out how to get even. Yeah. And it's amazing to me how ingenious employees are about getting even. They do. They balance the scales. Yeah. And 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 flip side, of course, if 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 you're watching me closely, you don't trust me. Well, that means I'm not going to trust you. So there, every time the door closes, there's a conversation. Every time there's a, a decision made which doesn't seem to fit with me, then there's going to be, in my head, a conspiracy going on as to try to, sort of, you know, get me out. Or it's all about me. And suddenly, the whole toxic environment creates. And so, yeah, you've got the lack of trust, wanting to get even, all these sort of things coming together. It's a Perfect hotbed, isn't it? <laughs> and that makes that toxic toxic workplace that people don't won't perform well in. Yeah. And it's, it is up to management uh, leadership to take... By the way, I hate the word manage. I think that we should abolish that. Team leaders are okay with me until we get the self-directed, but we're not there yet. We can't even... We can't even get to the next step, which is a high-performance work team with a team leader that's not a manager. Nobody wants to be managed, but, but we, we, we're still stuck. Uh, and it's up to team leaders to take the first step with trust. Uh, mm. it, nobody's got no one. No, by the way, why would I trust you? You're my boss. And I've always, I've always had problems with bosses, right? Uh, even though I work hard and I've earned the bonus, they changed the bonus rules this year. Uh, well, why are they doing that? Well, obviously, from my perspective, they don't want to pay me for my work. Uh, therefore, I now have to somehow get that money that I think belongs to me in some other fashion. And they do. I, I won't work as hard. I'll just cut back. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, but not enough to get fired, by the way. We know what the termination hey. threshold is. There's, there's, it, there's one or two people I know, and I might even have been in that category. You try, you try and do what you can to get fired, and they still won't get rid of you. <laughs> well, well, I have to do around here again. <laughs> well, and, and that's interesting because that you say that because yes, one of the techniques used uh, for HR when they have one of the workings that is to give them severance pay to go away. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. So now you've you've encouraged them to be bad, and you're going to pay them to leave. It's like, aren't you supposed to pay them to work? Uh, <laughs> pay them to leave. Easier to get. And by the way, they'll tell you it's easier to get rid of them, less problems. Mm. Okay. But, but all you're doing is prepare, and, and everyone in the workplace sees this. Yeah. Management's behavior does never is unnoticed. Managements are, managers are under a spotlight every minute of every day. And what they do gets modeled by their team. Yeah. Yeah. And if HR decides they're going to pay someone who everyone in the workplace knows should have been fired yesterday, uh, then that, that gives them a different perspective about the company. I, I, managers, team leaders are always telling me after they get rid of one of the working dead, the most common statement they get is a question. Why didn't you do it sooner? I mean, everybody knew, including you, and yet it took that long? Oh, my God. Anyway. <laughs> on, the, uh, on the subject of leaving... Uh, and uh, getting out of the job. So going back, your lawyer going for the win, whatever it takes to uh, to, to get that win. 
presumably doing quite well. What uh, what went wrong? Well, I I made the by the, by the way, I, you know, there's this theory about that you're the composite of the five people that you're closest to. Uh, well, in my work working for a union, I started to associate with people who were. <laughs> Who, who were on the wrong side of right. And I decided that, that it suited my personality. I wanted to be a, uh, I wanted to be a bad guy. Was this a sort of like the inner rebel kind of coming Oh, yeah, up? yeah. And these guys were having fun. I mean, you know, they were drinking and, and whoring and drugging, and, uh, and they were also uh, engaged in bribes and kickbacks. And... Uh, you know, something I started running with that crew. And like I said, it suited my personality. And I was a, uh, a wannabe bad guy. I wasn't as bad as they were, but but I was certainly within that the, the context of that definition of being bad. Mm. And uh, yeah, uh, I got caught up in that, that life and started to participate in taking bribes and kickbacks and got caught. And cost me... It was a sentence of seven years. Uh, I took my case from prison to the Supreme Court and got five and a half. Uh, but yeah, it destroyed my destroyed my career. Did, I'm shocked it did not destroy my my home life. Uh, obviously, like I said, my wife and I are still together, and she's got a, a backbone of steel. Uh, but yeah, I cannot I cannot can never practice law again. Mm. Uh, and like I said, spent five and a half years in prison. Mm. So what while while you were reveling in it and you know hadn't been caught was it was it in your mind that this can't last forever no or did I, you just I, think I, happy day I, I was the smartest guy in the room right arrogant and that li- literally i would tell myself the smartest guy in the room uh i had a huge ego i won right in court yeah. i was i was a winner uh and uh, no i was not going to get caught and if they came after me, I'd beat them. I had two trials, actually. Uh, first trial was a hung jury. Second trial, I was found guilty. Uh, you know, and no, I, if you do it, I wish I could tell you that, that, that I, I did not have that hubris, uh, but I absolutely did. And I paid the price for it. Obviously, I paid the price for my behavior, but also paid, paid the price for my, uh, my attitude, the, the level of pride I had in myself, thinking that I would never get caught. And if I did, I would beat it. And the U.S. government is is a larger opponent than I anticipated. (laughs) They definitely put the resources into it, believe me. Having seen certain people whose names will may meant, uh, we'll keep out of it, but uh, not accepting results of of decisions that have been made and so on and so forth. how long did it take you to actually internally accept the decision, the consequences? Year and a half in prison. I think I spent the first year and a half plotting on how I was going to kill those people who had testified against me and refusing to accept the fact uh, of my own accountability that uh, I had self-inflicted wounds. Uh, absolutely. There was no question about it, but it took me about a year and a half of being in prison that uh, I'm a slow learner and, uh, and, and it, 
I kept working my way through it, right? right? But at the very beginning, it would stop at how do I get even? Mm. How do I get revenge? And was it a gradual shift or was there a moment where you suddenly Um, went? It was a gradual shift. It wasn't anything that I can tell you that one day I said, oh, my God. I realized where I was at. I realized my career as a lawyer was over. I realized that I had uh, decimated the finances for my family. I had uh, used up my uh, my two boys' college funds and defense, uh, second mortgage, the house, uh, did everything possible, again, with two trials, very expensive, uh, and, uh, and uh, had absolutely destroyed my life and really hurt my family. And the realization of that was slow to come to me. Uh, but it got there. Uh, it, it, like I said, I can kind of look at it. I kept a journal throughout, throughout prison. And about a year and a half in, uh, it, it changed. Uh, the accountability set in. And uh, I started to realize that uh, first I need, I was going, I, I, there was never any question in my mind I was going to survive the experience. Uh, it, it was suddenly became one though of how can I make this a meaningful experience? What was left of the prison term because I had wasted the first year and a half and realized that that, that this was this was a waste. This was toxic for me mm-hmm. to continue to think about this. Uh, and the reality was that I had to accept responsibility for my own actions, and I did. It, it, it just came about. Uh, and and that, that, that sort of because uh, I'm always thinking your story about your experience in the army and how you resisted against the rules and that kind of thing. And I imagine in prison it's going to be the same sort of thing. So do you see the same sort of pattern in the way you responded to the prison system and it's a year and a half to to resisting to accepting kind of thing or? Well, it, 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 first, I, I made I <laughs> I came up with prison rules. <laughs> Your own ones. Because because when I when I you know and it was it was a federal prison camp, uh, so it was the lightest level of federal incarceration. Yeah, right? Above that is uh, they call it behind the wire, where uh, you go up to the next level, and and there you've got people who have done violent crimes. I was convicted of white collar crimes. Uh, and so I, I knew enough people who had been gone to prison, and uh, and I made the decision that I wasn't going to do two things. I wasn't going to make my time any longer or any harder, because I realized I could not escape the system. I mean, the whole point of escaping was what you would. And, and by the way, there was no fence around the federal prison camp. You could walk into the national forest. And, and walk away. Where were you going to walk away to? Was what I would always ask people. Where are you going to go? I mean, if you've got tons of money and you can change your identity and go to South America, but that wasn't me. I'd spend all my money trying to stay out of prison. Uh, so, so the reality was, I knew I was stuck within the system, but I also said, I'm not going to make it any longer, and I'm not going to make it any harder. That curtailed my activities. Uh, within that context, uh, and also accepting another a prison rule. Uh, you ain't running nothing, right? And believe me, you do not want to be a lawyer that goes to prison because the spotlight is on you from the day you arrive. The uh, the warden had a conversation with me within an hour after I had checked in. And it started off with a uh, full body cavity search. And the, uh, the guard that did it said, you know, this is special treatment for you because you're a lawyer. Right? I normally don't do this, but for you, the warden said, make him feel welcome. 
<laughs> <laughs> so, uh, and by, by the way, you can say, well, you're not going to do that to me, but the re reality is, uh, yeah, when you get, no, you, you have to remember who holds the club, right? Yeah, yeah. It wasn't me. And, uh, and then the wardens had scheduled an interview with me again. He didn't meet with people. He didn't care about inmates, right? It wasn't what he did. But they anticipated that I was going to be a problem. And he was going to make sure that I knew that if I were a problem in any way, that I was going to be uh, going to be shipped to the, uh, the higher level of incarceration after 90 days in the hole. Mm. Uh, and I told the warden that. I said, you know, I'm here to do my time. Nobody else's. Uh, I will not do anything that violates the rules that I could get caught for. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so, well, you know, I, you still have to survive in prison, by the way. And mm. uh, surviving in prison may, means different things, right? It, it, you, you, first, no drugs, no drinking, no drugs, no gambling. Right away, that, those were all off the table. And that had been your life for the last... Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, uh, and so, uh, you know, cold turkey, there, there's no... They don't give you an opportunity to go through a, a detox. Uh, no, they're having none of that. Uh, and at that point, accepting the fact that I wasn't in charge and that, that the rules did apply to me as much as they were going to be enforced. And I dealt with, uh, I dealt with that. Uh, first... You know, you have to uh, you have to be able to fit into prison society. Right? And the first thing I had to do was make sure that I wasn't dealing with anybody else's legal case, because everyone in prison wants you to review their case because they're sure that there's a way out. Right. And, uh, you know, the warden had been very clear. If you do that, you're going to go you're going to go to the hole. And second, I didn't want to do that. Uh, I was working my own case. Right. And so, uh, so, but, but, but it's how you tell people no. I don't care what situation you're in, right? How you tell people no matters. Yeah. And uh, I found a very quick way of, uh, of uh, telling people no. When they came to me and said, I want you to review my case. Now, remember, we're at a federal, uh, the lowest level of federal incarceration. And for most of the people who had gotten there, they got there on a deal. Right. They had cooperated with the government. And so when they came to me, I would go, I absolutely will look at your case as long as you didn't cut a deal. <laughs> and of course, they would go, well, I didn't. I'd go, okay, I'm going to go to the law library. And I'm going to look up your case to see if you cut a deal, because it'll be there. And that would be the end of the conversation. So that worked. I was like, don't have to deal with it because everybody here has cut a deal. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. Sure. So, uh, so you fit in, right? And and you don't you don't make trouble for yourself. There's no reason to. Uh, you find out very quickly who to stay away from. You find out very quickly who to uh, who to team up with. And by the way, uh, you know, prison is very segregated. Groups hang out with like groups. You don't you don't intermingle. Don't think you're going to be a white guy that sits at the black guy's table. That's not going to work. You sit at the white guy's table. And by the way, you said for me, it was you sat at the old white guy's table. And I was 50, I was 50 when I went into prison, right? Yeah. So, so no, I was like, I'm not associated with any of those people. And I didn't. I, uh, you know, I, I found some professionals who were in prison and, uh, and we 
we were there together and we were our support group. Mm. You know, they were the... why, why, what's your view on the natural segregation that happens in that in those situations? Because I've seen some programs before about where that, that happens and it happens in every sort of prison, as you say, and it just, everyone actually gravitates towards their tribe, so to speak. It, what's your take on that? It's just, it's what happens. If, if, if I am a young black from East St. Louis who's in jail for a drug crime, I'm going to associate with other young blacks that are from East St. Louis that, I, that we probably have some connection, right? Because when you start looking at the prison system, they keep sending you to places close to your home for the most part. And you end up with people who you know when you get there. <laughs> people you know when you get there set you up. Mm. They make sure that the first day you get a toothbrush, uh, you get toothpaste, you get soap, you get you get stuff from them, right? And that's what happened with me. The first day, you know, I didn't know anybody in prison, and uh, and so when I showed up uh, uh, during intake, uh, there was another uh, a white guy that was uh, probably in his mid thirties, and uh, so we got you always get you, you start in a uh, dormitory, right? And so you're assigned a bunk. And you go there, and that's where you're going to live until they allow you to move to a better living facility. And so uh, I showed up, and the guy guy walked over to me, and he said, "Hey, let me introduce myself." And he, you know, you know Barry. I still remember Barry, and Barry was like, uh, "You know, what are you in for?" We we exchange information, and he'd been doing uh, 15 years. And he said, "So uh, you want to have dinner with me tonight?" I'm like, sure. <laughs> I'm not exactly sure what that means. But Is that a euphemism? I ought to be a around. Not sure I know you that well, but, <laughs> but let's talk. And he said, no, he says, I, you know, I got my stuff from the other institution. We've moved. And he says, so we can cook tonight rather than eat the slop in the mess hall. I was like, works for me. You know, you know the system, right? And here's, so now I found a guy. You know, you always want to find a guy, right? New, whether you're a new person in an organization, you need to find a guy. Mm. You need to find somebody who tells you how things work. Not how you think they're supposed to work, but how they actually work. And, so and, uh, and people like Barry, I mean, it might be different in different things, but is, is it a genuine kind of helping the new guy out? Or is yeah, there a kind of a quid pro quo? It's like, you come into my camp, and then I know I've got someone else on my team, and Obviously, some phase will be coming back my way at some point. Oh, absolutely. I and mean, by the way, that is how it works, right? I mean, you, you, if, if somebody invites you into their team, they expect that you are going to provide something, right? You can't be a freeloader in prison. Nobody appreciates a freeloader. Uh, so so we, we go, we show up, and our, somebody from our team that's already there, they come and they get you. And they say, you know, here we are. And uh, we, this is who we are. You see who we are. You see why we're here. Similar crime, similar background, and you fit in. And, uh, and yeah, so uh, Barry and I hit it off right away, and we found another three guys, and uh, we, we suddenly had uh, our little team, right? Uh, it was a very small team, but that was fine. All of us, had, all of us were white-collar guys, and we were fortunate enough to have money from the outside. So we were able to support our activities together. Uh, because if you're going to eat together, you have to buy the food from the commissary that allows you to cook. And then, of course, there's the black market for vegetables. <laughs> right? So if you want a green pepper, an onion or a tomato fresh, 
you got to find somebody who works in the kitchen and is smuggling it out. And it was a quarter per vegetable. You want a tomato a quarter, a green pepper a quarter. And by the way, the I was there five and a half years, the price never went up. <laughs> the economy, and it's interesting because the guys in the kitchen who would bring it out decided that they were going to charge more. And as soon as they tried to raise the price, everybody quit buying. <laughs> right? It was it was primary economic supply and demand. And by mm. the way, what you have is perishable. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah, if, yeah. if you don't get if you don't get rid of it, you get nothing. <laughs> so work. <laughs> very simple economy, but very effective. Uh, so yeah, Barry Barry was a great guide and. Uh, and I teamed up with, with people that were, had a similar background, a banker. Uh, let's see, well, we had two bankers. We had a, uh, a guy from, uh, not from Wall Street, but from the stock market. Uh, and there were five of us. And uh, I had probably, the not probably, I did have the longest sentence of anyone in that group. So we added two a couple of times, right? As people would leave, uh, then you would try to find a replacement. So I got down to the last year and then I was like, man, I'm okay. I don't, I'd set myself up by then uh, so that I, I actually didn't need to be around anybody else. So presumably, presumably Barry was towards the end of his... Uh, his uh, yeah, he was... Uh, I think Barry, Barry was uh, maybe a year and a half and then he went home. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. And um, when what was it like for you when you left prison? What Who, who were you when you walked out that door? Well, I got a it. Uh, I got a sentence reduction. Went to the Supreme Court, got a sentence reduction, and uh, came back to Chicago. And, and my wife and uh, my youngest boy Kevin came down, picked me up from Marion. It was at Marion, Illinois, a five and a half hour drive. And so we showed up in front of the judge the next day, and uh, he said, "Yep, immediate release." And also, you're done. Uh, but you need to go to the probation office, which was about five blocks away from the courthouse and sign in, let them know you're here, right? And so uh, my wife and I started the uh, walk. It was June, June uh, uh, 21st, and uh, it was a nice sunny day in Chicago, and people were out, right? It was 2 o'clock in the afternoon, and the, the sidewalks were crowded. And we're walking there, and as we walked, I, you know, at some point, I kept, my wife kept looking at me, right, with concern, you know, and she'd look, and then we'd walk a little bit, and she'd look again, and finally I was like, okay, what's up? She said, well, I'm waiting for you to have that, the reaction you always hear about, right? That, that suddenly you're back and, oh my God, the people and I, I, the crowd and, and you go into a fetal position and all of that. And, and I, you know, I stopped, I looked at her, I said, you know, sweetie, that was my nightmare. This is my life. I had no problem. I was just back. And, uh, and I was, you know, did I just, it was life. I was suddenly back and it was like, yeah, I'm different because of a lot of things, but uh, that occurred, but I'm not different in that this is my life. Mm. Yeah. You, know, you always hear about people who obviously go through terrible transitions coming back. Uh, it happens. It's kind of the same thing with being in the army. If you go to war, as it, you know, PTSD, all of the things that are bad things that can happen to you. Doesn't happen to everybody. No, 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 no. It's uh, yeah, certain certain set of conditions have to be in place in terms of your makeup and your life experiences and all sorts. Yeah, 
Uh, and you have to, and again, see, this is where we start, where I start talking about resilience. As you start to hit these things that are setbacks, dramatic setbacks, how do you respond to them? How do you, how do you bounce, not only back, but bounce forward? Uh, you know, there's the, the concept of, uh, is of anti-fragility that not only should we be, from my perspective, not only should we be looking at, at, at recovering from the setback, but we need to take that setback and turn it into something that we can use that moves us forward. And to me, that's a part of the deal that we often forget when we talk about resilience. Mm. And, and, and because otherwise it's a wasted experience. If you yep. only do something, now, by the way, surviving is not a wasted experience, but, but clearly if you only get back to where you were, then, then it is a limited experience. How about if we take that information and we say, what, what can we do to use that experience to get better, to improve? Uh, and I, I was able to do that. Uh, my, my biggest thing, of course, was what was I going to do for work? <laughs> you know, a, 50, a 52-year-old ex-con, uh, your employment opportunities are not vast. Yeah. Uh, I, mean, I, mean, I, mean, I mean, most 52-year-olds that get made redundant are worried what they're going to do. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. Sling, sling a prison record in there as well, and that's just an extra card in the machine. <laughs> it is. It's, it's something that is a barrier. Uh, and that, that was extremely difficult. I reached out to everyone that I knew and, of course, couldn't be a lawyer anymore. And that's where I'd spent uh, you know, 30 years of my life. And so I had nothing else. I wasn't going to go back. And so so I, I just kept I kept reaching out and finally decided, I think I'm going to try to uh, teach. Uh, and I started filling out applications. And by the way, the Internet was completely new to me. Mm -hmm. Right, I go out in prison when it was just starting. It was completely new, and I, I very quickly adapted to the online thing. And I filled that application. I must have filled out a hundred teaching app. You know, you go online, you find a university. They're looking for an adjunct, and uh, and I finally, finally, uh, the deal was. I told my wife, if we get to this point, three months, and I haven't gotten anything, then then I'm going to have to take some menial labor. Right, I've got to do something. I can't just sit here. So the week that I filled out the application to work at Starbucks as a barista is the week that I got my first teaching assignment. So, so the career the career path merged dramatically. Now I'll, I'll tell you right now, I, I lied on the application because I know the reality is if you're a, an ex-offender, and you mark, have you ever been convicted of, of a crime? The odds of you getting beyond filling out that box, not good. Mm. And I re so I was like, no, I leave that. By the way, I would just leave it blank. Mm. You, so you didn't uh, lie, you were conservative. Exactly. See, that's how your, your, your head, yeah, you right. try to justify not doing that. You come up with this thing, I just won't. Well, no one apparently ever checked. I, no idea why they didn't. But uh, yeah, so I got I got a teaching uh, gig, uh, and then found another one. Then found hey, another teaching one. What, so teaching what? Law or uh, it was a business business course. Okay. Business course, at the University of Phoenix, and uh, and I drove seventy five miles to Milwaukee to teach it once a week. Right, but now I felt like all right, at least I've got something and. And from there, I started looking at what the skill sets and go, 
okay, what am I going to do with the skill set? I can't practice law anymore, but I think it's a very valuable skill set. And uh, I started contacting employers that I had <laughs> been on the other side of <laughs> and said, you know, uh, I think I could probably be of assistance to you. And finally, somebody said, sure. Uh, I've got a guy that, that I think you'd probably be a good match for to help me coach. And once you get the first referral, then obviously life becomes a little bit easier if you're successful at it. And I was successful at it. And my hook was, uh, if, if it doesn't get better, I don't get paid. Mm. Right? I mean, I'm, my skin in the game. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. Uh, and the guy was like, I, I've never heard that anybody's willing to do that. And I said, well, I am. Uh, obviously desperate perhaps, but, but also thought I'm going to be, I'm going to be successful at this. Well, we've, we've heard before about your ability to have that uh, ironclad confidence <laughs> instead of what you can do. <laughs> now with an element of humility, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, so, you know, I, I, that's how it started. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I've, we, I presume you have the same phrase as us, but there's the, the phrase about poacher turning game, gamekeeper. And uh, you're very literally just <laughs> going that route, you know, yeah. bringing people up and saying, you remember how I really hacked you off when we won that case? <laughs> Can I come work for you now? <laughs> that was it. By the way, that was the pitch in, in summary, right? Yeah. I, I, I beat your ass in court. Uh, you probably would like for me to help you beat someone else's ass. <laughs> Can we work together now? And yeah, at some point they were like, yeah, I think so. Yeah. And uh, and it it uh, developed. Mm. And again, you know, right at the start, you, we were talking about how the how our story of our lives shapes what we do. But I just you know, hearing your stories, you go through everything, and hearing the dynamics of how it worked in prison, how it worked in law before that, you can really see how what you do now and what you do for people has come directly out of that. The interactions between people, the the, the clarity of what's required. I love the fact that you've got the just thinking of the, the the wardens talking to you saying you've got a choice you can follow the rules or you could not follow the rules but you've got to be accountable for the responses and then you're talking about the, tri the, the 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 tribe sort of thing and the segregation in the prison it's like yes well these are the rules i'll show you the rules and you can follow the rules or not follow the rules but you've got a choice you can, <laughs> there's gonna be consequences you've got to, you've got to be accountable you've got to, no freeloaders and it just builds through and through into what you do now and, it does and i i think that, that we have a tendency to overcomplicate. I don't believe things are complicated. Mm. I think we know when we're right and we know when we're wrong. And unless we don't know what's expected of us, we can often flounder with that. Uh, but, but if we know what's expected of us, we have a choice. You're right. It, it's very much uh, a linear approach to this. Is You either want to do it or you don't. And if you don't, then, then perhaps you need to do something else. Uh, so, no, it's, uh, it all has led me, you know, we're the sum total of our experiences. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fantastic. And, and what's your vision for the future? Where Where are you going? What's your plan? Well, I'm not. Uh, I, I'm definitely continuing to do what I do. I, I'm writing. I've got a second book coming out in September. And so just uh, just remind us the first book that came out. The first book is called is the, the name of the is titled Work Quake. Work quick. Yeah, I made that word up. <laughs> so if you use it, please send me a dollar. Uh, <laughs> it's trademark. Uh, and uh, and I, that, that's been wow. That's been 2011, I think. Yeah. And so uh, so I'm I'm doing a, a second volume 
uh, you know, my wife said, well, you know, what are you going to call it? And I said, well, we're quick too. She goes, <laughs> real original. <laughs> so, <laughs> be two T-W-O or T-double-O? <laughs> That's right. I think T-W-O, but we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> the title is always the last thing to come with the book, you know, get it written first and then. Uh, uh, so, so, yeah, uh, so, second book. Yep. So anyway, yes, that uh, I'm a, uh, I'm a uh, Forbes coach now. I'm there, uh, so I publish on Forbes. Uh, I still think I've got a lot to say. I enjoy what I do. Uh, tell people that uh, coaching for me is energetic. Uh, just like this conversation, I will, when, when, we, when we are done, I will be more energized than I was before we started. Mm. Uh, and, and unless I've just got somebody who is absolutely hating the process, uh, the relationship in coaching allows me to do six or seven a day. I have 45 people in the coaching program and most coaches are like, well, that's just crazy. You can't possibly uh, function with it. First, I am anal. We, we have our schedule. I keep meticulous notes and I am energized by the process. Uh, so once I stop being energized, I guess I'll stop doing it, but I don't feel any of that now. And I also think that I've got a, a clarity about what I think work should be like. And I continue to press that message home in the coaching process. By the way, most coaches, especially certified coaches, hate my system. They, they don't like the fact that I will shift from being a coach to an advisor because I don't believe people should be allowed to drown. Yeah. And this concept about, well, they have to come up with the answer on their own. I'm okay starting there. But, but at some point when I see you're going down for the third time, I'm going to help you here. I'm not going to say, well, you, you know, good luck with that. Uh, no, uh, no, no. And again, I, I am perhaps I, my clarity is not as clear as I think it is. But, but I do think that I am, I'm pretty simplistic about this, but I'm spot on about how work should be. Mm. Uh, and I like to spread that message. And as long as there's an audience for that, and I think that there is because people realize that the system is broken, but when, when Gallup does a engagement survey and they celebrate the fact 35% of the workforce is engaged, that's stupid. I, it really is. I mean, how, what are you celebrating here? Oh, well, because it's better than it was. I'm like, oh, geez, look at this. If 35, well, what do we have? 65% are unengaged and we're celebrating that? Stop already. Let's look at, let's look at what we have to do to, to make everybody engaged. Uh, and that to me is that to me is again. I, I think that we all know what to say as leaders. We just don't do it. Mm. And um, you know what you've just been saying there in terms of where you're going and what energizes you leads me nicely into sort of the final question. Really, uh, I ask all my uh, guests, uh, Paul Glover, what makes your bits tingle? You know, uh, it's these type of engagements, uh, and not blowing smoke. I'm not, I tell people I'm not capable of blowing smoke. Uh, these are the type of engagements that I enjoy so much that first I get to pontificate. And I love to pontificate. I think I've got a message and I, I'm looking for forums where I can pontificate. Uh, and, and so that does, that makes my bits tingle. Uh, I also, I, I love caring about people and helping people. Uh, I do it in a very rough way often, but it is not out of anything except my deciding that I care enough about you to tell you the truth. I believe that the truth is a gift. 
And, and if I give it to you, it's because I value the relationship enough to tell you the truth. Uh, that to me is, is what does it every day. That's why I do what I do. And that and the money. <laughs> let's, let's not get silly about it. Huh? <laughs> it doesn't hurt, does it? <laughs> no, it does not. So I'm constantly looking for, for, uh, for people who are uh, able to engage with me and feel okay with it. Uh, again, I'd said uh, earlier that, uh, Andrew, that I, it's distribution and manufacturing because they're a little bit more hardcore. Hospitality and health and I don't get along real well. Uh, a little bit too much truth without the without the polish. Uh, so so uh, so, but but anyway, it's not that I wouldn't take them as a client. But the reality is that they don't they they don't like usually how I'm how I conduct myself. A little too hard, but I'm okay with that. I found I found an audience that appreciates what I do. Yeah, it's exactly what you want. And and if people do want to appreciate what you do and find out what you yeah, do, where should they go? Sure. What, what where should they look for you? What should well, they we've, we've got a website, uh, paulglovercoaching.com. Very, very original. Uh, you can email me at paul at paulglover.com. Uh, I have a YouTube channel, Paul Glover Coaching, and uh, I'm on LinkedIn, Paul Glover Coaching. I, I try, to, try to take one message and just repeat it so, it, so you can't forget it. Uh, so that's how, that's how people get in touch with me. I do individual as well as group coaching. Uh, and you know, it, you've probably got a real flavor for how I do it uh, through this conversation. And if uh, you want to get better at what you do, uh, I'm your guy. And I always tell people, you can find it cheaper, you'll never find it better. Brilliant. Uh, it's been an absolute pleasure, Paul. I've thoroughly enjoyed your uh, your our chat today. The, the the insights, the the story. It's all and, it, and how it all comes together as well. There's uh, there's so much in there. So um, uh, yeah, thank you for coming on, and um, I wish you. All the best for the future. Andrew, thank you very much for the opportunity and uh, hopefully we'll connect again down the road. Absolutely. Brilliant. Thank you, Paul. These podcasts are not necessarily here to give you all the answers. I want you to think about what's been said, what's come up and how you might apply that to your own situation. And if you've enjoyed it, then please subscribe to the podcast and of course share it on the social media platforms and so more people get a chance to hear what's going on. Thanks very much for listening. My name's Andrew Miller from Business Enjoyment and I want you to enjoy your business so much it makes your bits tingle.